Welcome to a podcast of the Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. Today, we're going to welcome Dr. Maria Kampa for a discussion of Saudi America, the truth about fracking and how it's changing the world by Bethany McLean. Dr. Kampa is a postdoctoral researcher in the Institute for a Secure and Sustainable Environment at the University of Tennessee. She currently studies how bacteria respond, adapt, and resist the biocides used in hydraulic fracturing and its implications for environment and public health. She's also interested in finding novel water treatment and reuse strategies for hydraulic fracturing wastewater. I'm not sure I understood anything I just read to you, but <laughs> we will by the end of this hour. Kampa received her doctorate in energy science and engineering through the Bredesen Center for Interdisciplinary Research and graduate education at the University of Tennessee and at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. I'd like for you to welcome Dr. Kampa. Hi, everyone. As you said, my name is Maria Fernanda Campa, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for a Secure and Sustainable Environment. I'm really happy to lead that discussion about this book, Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. I've been studying fracking for around five years, and everything I've been reading about it has been focused on the environmental side of fracking. So it was very interesting to me to read about the finances of fracking and how they're not as profitable as you might imagine from oil and gas. I would like to give a brief overview of what fracking is. By a show of hands, who has heard about the difference between conventional and unconventional oil and gas? Some of you. This distinction is quite important. This is the reason why the shale revolution was as important as it was. So conventional oil and gas is the typical image you have when you think about a, a well. You have a big pool of hydrocarbons that you can easily just drill down, and just like using a straw in a big hydrocarbon pool, you can just get the hydrocarbons out. Really straightforward. However, since the 1970s, the conventional reserves in the United States have been steadily declining. It was known that we did have more hydrocarbons, but instead of being present in these big pools of oil and gas, they were trapped in non-permeable rock called shale. So that means that the hydrocarbons are trapped in little pockets. So instead of being able to just drill down and get them, you just can't, because if you do, you have to drill so many wells that it's just not possible. For many decades, the possibility of how to economically extract this was constantly being discussed by geologists and engineers alike. And around the early 2000s, a technical pioneer called George Mitchell discovered that by combining the noble way of vertical and horizontal drilling with a hydraulic fracturing, which was a technique that was already being used by oil and gas, he could create high-pressured water and chemicals to be pushed down the well. This caused the rock pockets to fracture, releasing all the hydrocarbons and oils. And this was what created the shale revolution. So fracking uses a mixture of water. How much water, you might ask? Millions of gallons of water. There's reports to up to 8 million gallons are used. This water is mixed with different chemicals and sand. This mixture is injected underground. In this underground well, it goes horizontally, right? Because we need to uh, cover as much land as possible to be able to trap all those different pockets. 
the highly pressurized fluid is able to crack open the rock, and the sand, which is crucial, keeps those fractures open. That way, the hydrocarbons can flow back to the surface. But there's an issue. Not only are hydrocarbons flowing back to the surface, now up to 70% of those liquids also come back, causing big wastewater handling issues. The water is not just containing the original chemicals that we added. The chemicals can transform in different ways because it's very uh, hot and there's a lot of pressure there, so chemicals act in weird ways. In addition, there's a lot of other stuff down below, below ground that we can be picking, such as very high salinity. This, remember, these formations are millions of years old, so their salt content is even higher than ocean water, making a really big issue of how to treat this water. In addition, depending on where this shale rock is, you can also be picking up naturally occurring radioactive material, again, making it really hard to handle this wastewater. But you may be thinking, oh, this sounds like it would be a very difficult endeavor with a lot of technical moving parts. This is what a typical well pad looks like. And I want you to see closely that a lot of this stuff is just really trucks that are trucking in either water or chemicals. The well pad is just that little tiny circle right there. And that well pad can have more than one well. Because remember, we're now drilling down and then horizontally. So a well pad can be drilled in like basically a star shape with as many horizontal wells as the engineer decides. So where in the US is fracking happening? The only state that has completely outbanned fracking is New York. But other than that, it's happening pretty much all over. The biggest states with fracking shale oil or shale gas are Texas, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, Ohio, North Dakota, and California. You may be thinking, how about Tennessee? I live here, I care about Tennessee. So there's the Chattanooga Black Shale that crosses through East Tennessee. However, luckily or unluckily, depending on how you feel about oil and gas, Tennessee is one of the least oil and gas producing states in the country. So there's very few licensed wells, less than 20,000. I checked the records this week and only around 100 of those have licenses to do horizontal drilling. So only 100 of those can actually be fracked. However, the Chattanooga Black Shale is special. It is not as deep as you would expect in Pennsylvania or Texas. So you don't need fluids to frack it. You can use highly pressurized nitrogen gas. So then you alleviate the huge resource uh, pressure of using all the water and how to handle the wastewater. And why is handling the wastewater such a big issue? Because of the technical limitations I already discussed, it's really expensive to reuse or repurpose this water. Some companies do, but the majority of the water is just injected back underground. Oil and gas companies have special disposal wells that are licensed and permitted, but because of the high volumes of fracking water that we're generating, there's high pressure forming up in these disposal wells. And that is what's causing the fracking earthquakes that we hear in the news. It's not fracking itself that causes the earthquakes, but the disposal of these millions of gallons of water that are, keep causing these earthquakes. Here I show a map by the U.S. Geological Survey, which is in charge of studying these events. And it shows how areas such as Oklahoma and central and eastern United States have been seeing way more earthquakes, which are areas that normally don't see it. And you can see that the time correlates with the shale revolution around 2008 or over, so 2010. So 
even though the book didn't talk about environmental issues, I, th I thought it would be at the service for you to not hear like a quick overview of the different environmental issues related to fracking. We already talked about the flowback water disposal and reuse. It's not only that we're generating a lot of water and that we need to do something about it. But water is a very precious resource for us, right? And to do a lot of things, extract energy, produce food, even just drink, shower, we need water. So it's very important for us to be able to protect this resource. The issue with injecting the water underground is that we're removing the water from the water cycle. So no matter what happens, we're never going to get that water brained on us again. So when you're taking water from like already water-scarce areas such as Texas and California to frack, you're also putting unnecessary stress on those uh, already water-scarce areas. However, it's not an easy task. Because of the high salinities, it's really complicated to use traditional methods to repurpose or reuse. They do reuse some of the water for fracking, especially in western United States that has less salt content in their shales. But this problem is alive and well, and there's a lot of scientists working on it right now. Another interesting topic that is the one that I study, so I'm a little bit biased, is biocide resistance. So why would fracking companies care about the microbes? Microbes are the main cause of corrosion on pipes. Corrosion on pipes causes accidents. They can break, spills can occur. So to prevent that, Chemicals called biocides are used to kill those microbes. However, there's reports that the microbes in the wells are really alive and well. Are they becoming resistant or are we not using the proper biocides? We just got funding from the National Science Foundation to understand how these microbes are adapting and how that adaptation can maybe affect public health or environmental health. The other big environmental issue are spills. So a lot of people worry about their groundwater. They think, well, if it's fracking and these fissures reach my groundwater table, I'm going to be drinking contaminated water. That actually is possible, but not. it wouldn't happen as easy as a surface spill. The shales are way below the groundwater table. So I would discuss that the surface spills are more worrisome. There's a lot of water that is transported through trucks and pipes that are very easy to cause any spill. And a lot of the water is also just hauled on site in open pits. Imagine a pool. So any weather event can cause some of that water to reach the environment and leach to places that you wouldn't want it to be. Another very important environmental issue is fugitive gas release. What that means is that a lot of the wells basically have fugitive gas coming out, methane, especially the oil ones. What happens is that it ends up offsetting the benefits of using natural gas versus coal, for example. Because even though natural gas is a way cleaner fuel than coal, if you are just leaving it in the environment, it's a very potent greenhouse gas. It's four times more potent than CO2, carbon dioxide. So scientists and engineers are working together right now to figure out ways to better trap that and try to reuse it. However, the cheap gas prices makes it easier for them just to burn it away. However, despite the environmental concerns surrounded fracking, fracking has a huge significance in this country for energy and economic security. Cheap 
natural gas and oil has really revolutionized the economic growth in the United States, making manufacturing really cheap. I think from all of our OPEC partners, we have the cheapest manufacturing cost right now due to the low prices in energy, which is huge. We're also boasting energy security. Our imports of foreign oil and gas have been steadily declining, making us more and more independent of other sources of energy. However, does that mean we're going to get energy independence? And that's a loaded term that the author, Bethany McLean, discussed a little bit more, and I'll dive into that. So I thought the book was a really nice introduction to what fracking is. It's a really short book. You can read it in an afternoon. Bethany McLean is a very famous investigative journalist in financial affairs. She was the one that tapped the lid open for the whole Enron scandal back in the late 90s, early 2000s. In this book, she gave us a brief oil and gas history lesson, and she ties most of the fracking industry back to this oil tycoon character, Aubrey McClendon. She talked about the shaky finances of fracking and how really oil and gas, even though they've been producing like crazy, are not really profitable, which is very worrisome. And then she also discussed the different geopolitical stages and how, can the, how is the U.S. Uh, moving along with this uh, newfound energy sources. And she also asked, what is next? Can we really rely on all pure oil and gas, or should we move on to other stuff? So let's start with one of, I think, my eye-opening quotes from this book. Without the 2008 financial crisis and the injection of capital, we will not have the shale revolution. I think that was very interesting for me to read. I had never really thought about what fueled the shale revolution other than they had found oil and gas. But the interesting thing with unconventional oil and gas is that you need a lot of capital to start building the new wells, right? So because they were able to borrow very cheap money at really low interest, it really pushed forward this treadmill of let's keep borrowing and let's keep borrowing and let's keep building and producing. So this is a projections of shale gas production. But as you can see, around 2008, we had steady production of gas and oil. And around 2008, we see this exponentially increase. And we're projecting that it's at least gas is going to keep increasing. We can see the same thing with oil. We see that we had steady production, even kind of a decline. And around 2008, 2010, we see our sharp increase. And now uh, the United States is the number one oil producer. It's also the number one gas producer. However, you would think with that much production, and now that we're also exporting oil and gas, because it was banned, and in 2015 that changed. So you would think, well, we're making enough money, so the oil and gas companies should be making big profits. That was another very interesting tidbit that I learned from the book. The fracking boom has been fueled mostly by overheated investment capital, not by cash flow, which means that because the companies were able to borrow such cheap capital, they were not worried about really producing cash flow. They could keep borrowing, and it caused this treadmill mentality. You have to keep increasing production, but however, unconventional oil and gas wells are not as the conventional ones of the past, that you drill one and you can keep producing for 10 years. Unconventional oil and gas wells can decrease up to 80% of their production in the first two years. So for us to keep increasing production, we need to keep drilling more and more and more, which needs a lot of capital investment. 
And a person that cracked the code of this and really took advantage of the situation was Aubrey McClendon. He was the founder of Chesapeake Energy, which at one point was the number one gas producer in the country after Exxon, so the number two. He was really good at borrowing money and convincing people to let them lease his land. So in the U.S., it's a very interesting scenario. You own the mineral rights under your land, so they don't have to convince anyone other than you to drill. In other countries, you have to go through more of a regulatory huddle. So his company was really good at finding people and getting leases and predicting where, where would be a good place to keep drilling. He raised billions of dollars this way. He started getting very comfortable, so he started overpaying to basically make his competitors not being able to compete with him. He lived a very lavish lifestyle, and just as he won billions of dollars, he lost billions of dollars. At the end, he was convicted of securities fraud and passed away the next day in a mysterious accident that some people think might have been self-inflicted. The, the author uses his reckless personality as a mirror of what the fracking industry was. However, I would like to discuss that she also mentioned that there was at least five companies that were profitable at this time. If some companies can really generate cash flow and be profitable, does that have more to do than with poor managerial style? Like this guy has, was the billionaire. He was buying sports teams, but his company was in red numbers. So it, something doesn't add up. And it's interesting to think about that because more and more companies nowadays are being pushed to be profitable, and I think there is a way. We'll talk about it later. Another quote that really sparked my eyes was that Wall Street willingness to fund money-losing shale periods in turn a reflection of the ultra-low interest rates. This book was written in 2018. We now know that the Federal Reserves did increase the interest rates. So she asked the question, is fracking the next financial crisis? The companies for a long time, including Aubrey McClendon's Chesapeake Energy, were valued based on the acreage they hold, basically the land that they were able to lease from people, not how much money they were producing by the sales of oil and gas. She equates this of how the dot-com bubble was valued back in the 90s. Basically, they used to value companies based on how many eyeballs were seeing the company online. But as you might know, you can be on Amazon all day and not buy anything. So that doesn't mean any real money for the company. Just as holding a lot of land doesn't mean that you're really producing anything if you're not selling at a profitable margin. So the author, Bethany McLean, identifies three main red flags that could trigger a financial crisis. Low interest capital will not be available forever, which we know it's true. The Federal Reserve already increased the interest rates. The second thing, which was very interesting to read, was that pension funds, uh, after the 2008 financial crisis, pension fund managers turned to private equity firms and hedge funds expecting higher returns. So one-third of all the money, all the investment in the U.S. fracking industry comes from pensions, which is really scary to read. So... I would assume that as a responsible pension fund manager, the moment you see, hey, oil and gas is not being profitable, maybe I should take all the pension money and put it in a safer place because I have a responsibility with the pension holders. So 
if those two things are gone, that means there's two big empty pockets of money now that the fracking industry doesn't have. And because they need intense capital, this might really shorten their like production, increasing a crisis in, in energy and gas production, and oil and gas production. And which comes to the last point, which is high growth expectations that might not be able to be met in a more rational economic environment, which we are reaching to that point. However, Bethany McLean does make a distinction that I think is very important. Oil and natural gas are very different. Natural gas is more profitable and not as sharp production decline. Natural gas right now is really cheap. Even conservative estimates say that we have enough shale gas in this country to last 100 years. But shale oil, on the other hand, some people estimate that we only have enough for five more years. So it's very different when we're talking about the type of hydrocarbon that's coming out. And then she finalized the book talking more about geopolitics. And the big question, what is energy independence? I'm sure that in the news you've heard multiple people throw out that, uh, oh, fracking is going to make us energy independent. And that is kind of a loaded question. We can produce as much oil and gas as we consume, but we're always going to have to export at least a little bit because there's certain hydrocarbons that we need for cer certain value-added petrochemical products, such as fertilizers or uh, transportation or different, different types of oils. So we're always going to depend a little bit on it. Also, the price we pay for oil will be set by events around the world. And while fracking has weakened OPEC's grip on the price, the U.S. can negotiate more, we still depend on products that are created in other parts of the world because we're a globalized economy. So even if America doesn't need Middle Eastern oil, its allies in Europe do, and China certainly does. So the American economy is dependent on global economy. For example, most of the electronic components that are used in the U.S. are produced in Asia. Under no circumstance can the U.S. produce enough oil and gas for us and for Asia. So that means that all the electronic products that we buy and use every day are going to be price dependent on OPEC's oil prices. So we really are not going to be completely energy independent. It's always going to affect the way that we live in some way or another. And it's also important to think that to maintain production of 1 million barrels per day in the United States, we require 2,500 wells. That's a lot. Well, production in uh, oil countries such as Iraq, Saudi Arabia, they can do that in, with less than 100 wells. And those wells are conventional wells that can keep producing for a longer time. One more quote that I really liked. America is the only country in the world to have made the switch to unconventional oil and gas. America is the only country to have exhausted its supplies of conventional oil and gas. So while we are living it up, producing a lot of oil, oil and gas right now, there's a lot of other countries that have unconventional oil and gas reserves, such as China and Poland. So what's going to happen once more countries decide that it's time for them to start fracking? The oil and gas prices are going to decrease even more. So can the U.S. still produce at cheap enough prices to be competitive with the rest of the world? A final question is how do we compete in a globalized economy? And how do we prepare long term for volatile energy prices, especially oil and gas energy prices? And the author talks about renewable energy. She even says that private equity and Wall Street execs that used to be giving a lot of money to oil and gas companies are now shifting to renewables. 
She has a quote from one of the, I think it's Warren Buffett's advisor. Within 10 years, solar power will be cheaper than fossil fuels without subsidies, which is a very important thing. The United States has more oil and gas subsidies than it does for renewables. Oil and gas has been going on in this country for more time than renewables, so there's a lot of laws that are already ingrained in our everyday, day-to-day uh, life that protects oil and gas to be profitable. So if without subsidies, renewables can be cheaper, I don't understand why wouldn't we want to embrace that. She asked the question, when is going to be the end of oil and gas? And the real answer is that no one knows. People have been trying to predict that for the longest time. We thought in the 1970s, when we reached our peak oil production, that that was it for the United States and that we were going to continue being more and more dependent on foreign energy. And then we found shale, right? So we never know. We never know when it might end, but it's a non-renewable. So that means it's finite. At some point, it's going to finish. And at some point, it's just going to be too expensive and also too maybe environmentally harsh to keep using it. So we are a low-cost producer of gas. Oil, not so much. And oil, we might not have enough for the next couple of years. But there's a distinction that she makes. We are going to be using hydrocarbons, maybe not for our base load, but we would need them for production of our food. The reason why the U.S. is so good at feeding its people and one of the top agricultural producers is that we have top-of-the-line fertilizers and pesticides. Those are all made with hydrocarbons. So we are still going to be using, even in a perfect world where we can completely use renewables for everything else, we're going to be needing hydrocarbons. And if uh, we are selling them super cheaply right now, and hoping to drill as fast as we can and beat all of the countries, there's going to be a point that we're going to still need to be buying it from someone else. So why not just keep them and store them for our own purposes? And the U.S. has been thinking about that strategy for a while. I don't think they're going to completely do it, but there has been a lot of investment in petrochemical companies. So basically, these are companies that use hydrocarbons to produce uh, value-added products such as transportation fuels, pesticides, fertilizers. And if we're able to maybe produce that at a cheap cost for the U.S. and export, that might even be more profitable than just importing oil and gas like crazy. So right now, we're only uh, using 11% renewable energy for our total overall energy consumption. The author discusses that within 10 years, solar can be used more broadly. But we still have the issue of baseload. We cannot just put solar energy or wind energy in the grid. It needs something that doesn't fluctuate. So natural gas is still a good alternative for that baseload, or nuclear energy is also a good alternative for that baseload. But we can make that size of the pie bigger, and it's believed that we can do that within 10 years. There's even estimates that if the U.S. really wanted, they could have a complete renewable economy by 2050. So final remarks and the future outlook. Oil and natural gas are now major sources of energy. However, in the United States at least, they're more dependent on Wall Street than geopolitics or geology. As cheap loans are drying up, it's going to be interesting what happens to fracking. Are they going to continue producing or are they going to have to lower production to make sure that they're actually producing cash flow? Uh, we know that the production growth is probably not sustainable. So again, we'll see what happens now that the feds have increased the, the interest rates. 
And it begs the question, what is the coherent energy plan for the U.S.? It seems like a lot of our allies and a lot of other countries have long-term plans of how the energy markets should look in their country. The U.S. keeps going back and forth between we want to have renewables or now we want to do energy domination and use coal for everything. We need a long-term plan that can really help us serve the boom and bust cycles of the oil and gas industry. And I think I echo what she discussed, that we should save hydrocarbons for important value-added products that would feed us and will help us maintain our way of life for longer. And I'm going to leave you with a quote that she wrote in the book. Should we really pursue a continued and arguably bolstered fossil fuel energy strategy for geopolitical or other reasons when the transition to renewable energy production is both necessary and inevitable? Please, uh, I would love to hear your opinions about this book. And if you have any questions, I would be happy to answer them. Thank you. We put oil on the, mar on the world market whether it's produced here or whether it's produced in South America, whether it's produced in Canada, it all goes on the world market. And we need to understand that. There is no American label for American oil. Forget that. And we understand the reality of what oil is all about and how it's priced, then we understand that the U.S. has no role in controlling that. That is correct. Too many Americans are living under the assumption that American oil is for us. It is not for us. And it's not our oil. Especially when we are uh, selling it so cheaply. So it's not benefiting anyone other than, I don't know who, to be honest. But thank you for sharing that. Any other comments? Yeah. You mentioned China and I think Poland, but what other countries, and Canada of course, what other countries around the world are either fracking or have the potential for fracking? Um, I think the UK was discussing it. I think in South America there's some countries, I remember if it's Argentina or Chile. Basically, if you think about it, a lot of the countries that would have conventional resources could also have unconventionals. I have not really looked specifically like a world map to see where stuff is, but a lot of them have not had the necessity to look for it yet. But I think we should be rest assured that when they need it and the technology has been developed, that they would think about doing it. You know, fracking is so controversial that some countries also have the discussion of should we even allow it in the country or not. And I think, I might be wrong, I think Australia has been having that debate for a while now. I don't know what happened if they decided they were going to allow fracking or not. They're still fracking? Yeah. But it was a, a debate, like the debate that we had in, have in the U.S. People are not happy with it, and New York State was able to, to ban it. You know, New York State is right next to Pennsylvania, which it has one of the biggest resources. But they were able to decide not to do it. And then you also have countries. Uh, I know this is not to have to do with shale, but, for example, the Saudi Arabia has one of the biggest conventional oil and gas research, right? They have a 20-year plan to build a completely renewable-powered city. And they're trying to become a renewable energy country. They're investing very heavily on solar, and they're trying to produce the cheapest solar energy in the world. 
if a country that has the kind of reserves that they have and they could easily outpace us with a production whenever they wanted is investing in solar, that means maybe we should also be thinking about renewable energy as well. I think Germany, you know, is transitioning from nuclear power. They have decommissioned quite a few of the plants. Yes, that's correct. Um, so what is your take on an optimum mix of nuclear, coal, solar, renewables for the U.S.? I know a lot of people don't like nuclear energy, but I consider nuclear energy as part of the renewable portfolio. It's um, more environmentally friendly than coal, and it could really save the base load. The issue with nuclear energy is that there's a lot of investment needed to bring a new plant online. The infrastructure in the U.S. is quite old. It would be wise to maybe invest in some nuclear power plants to help with the base load, at least while we figure out the best way to really store renewable energy, which is the issue. We need to figure out cheap ways to store it, and right now batteries are not there yet. But also a point, Germany decommissioned a lot of their nuclear power plants, but they still import most of their energy from France, which is mostly nuclear energy powered. And they're right next door, so fun fact. It's interesting because people say, oh, how about the Three Mile Island almost accident, right? The fact that that's in recent memory we have so little accidents or like near misses but nothing really happened shows how safe really nuclear is. There's more coal ash incidents occurring, which are so bad for our health and the environment. In addition, I, have a, I don't do nuclear energy, but I have uh, classmates that are nuclear engineers. And some people, as you can be, you, you're worried about where you live and you don't want to be ne next to a power plant being coal, nuclear, whatever. And uh, for his presentation, for his dissertation, he was discussing how like eating a banana has radiation. Uh, sleeping next to your spouse gives you radiation. Uh, take, taking a plane to visit your family members gives you radiation. But the radiation that you get by living right next to a power plant is the same as you eating a banana. So it, it, puts, it puts it in perspective, right? Like, how is that even possible? But it puts it in perspective. Yes. I lived on Long Island for many, many years. There was a nuclear power plant there. And I guess we all sort of said, oh, well, this Long Island Lighting Company, we're all okay. But then we realized that someone gave a speech that says that nuclear power plants have a lifespan. Yeah. And then you have to rebuild them again. And I was so fortunate to be able to work in New Mexico where they bury the nuclear waste into salt mines. And then they put the, they put the waste into barrels steel barrels in a salt mine, and even the canary in the coal mine knows that sooner or later, salt will erode the, the barrels. It happened. So keeping nuclear waste safe away from us, we used to throw it out to sea. God knows what's happening with yeah, that. Yeah. But at the time, we thought that we were very, very safe out there on Long Island, and we had nothing to worry about, and then these truths started coming forward. So I think that although nuclear plants can serve a purpose, people need to be told that 
the materials and the things that make up that plant, they deteriorate after a while. And they have to, you have to rebuild that, and that's expensive. Yeah. And most people aren't faced with that expense. I think it's also uh, for the waste, for example, that's a policy issue. So the United States does not allow their repurposing or reuse of the nuclear waste. But countries like France can keep repurposing that. They keep enriching it. So they don't have the volumes of waste that the United States generates. In addition, the United States promised to have a repository for nuclear waste. I want to say more than a decade ago, it was supposed to be in Nevada. And uh, Nevada blocked it. So what's happening right now, it's that a lot of utility companies are holding on to their waste, uh, waiting for uh, a repository to happen. And yes, I think that adds more to your point than to my point. But um, the, the whole point, again, I think it's policy, right? There's better ways to deal with this, but no one has really done anything. So what's happening, the energy companies, nuclear energy companies, are keeping their waste. They sue the government and they get money to, I guess, maintain it at, in their perimeter. But there, that's a short-term solution. We need to do either a repository of where we're going to put this away from people or maybe adopt more modern ways to deal with this waste, like repurposing and keep reusing it so we are not generating barrels and barrels of waste. Okay. Mm-hmm. Concerning the um, biocide resistant bacteria. I'm a microbiologist. Oh, yay! Is there a specific strain or is this just general microbial resistance uh, going on? So that's a good question. So the reason why it matters what strain it is, is that there's some bacteria that are pathogenic, which could get us sick, and there's environmental bacteria that no matter if they have resistance, it's not going to affect us. The issue happens when the environmental bacteria decides that they can horizontally transfer those resistant genes to the pathogenic bacteria. And that's what we're studying right now. Uh, my dissertation, I was able to show that there is biocide adaptation happening. The environmental microbes can resist it better. And that in turn means that the biocide stays there for longer. It's not being degraded, which is a whole cascade of ecotoxicological issues because it's basically a chemical meant to kill living things so it can affect fish and other natural things in the environment. But we're just starting to look at the genetic factors to see if it can really pass from one bacteria to another or if it's just an overall resistance thing that might not really translate to antibiotics. Because, you know, there's a difference between a biocide and an antibiotic. Antibiotic resistance is very specific to that antibiotic. Antimicrobial resistance, I don't know if you guys remember... Triclosan. It used to be on old antibacterial soaps that we used to wash our hands with. And then they decided, hey, no, this is not safe. We're just causing our microbes to be resistant, but not, we're not really protecting ourselves for anything. So they outlawed that. They banned them. So it, it's a similar idea. We're just creating a broad spectrum of resistance. It might be bad, but we, we have not been able to really quantify what bad means. Hi, Maria. Hi. I guess I'll play not really devil's advocate, but I'll preface by saying that I have some experience on the ground floor for a lot of the fracking industry because I was an engineer for a fracking company for a few years before I moved out here. So one of the things that I noticed when I was out there is, you know, there is a large mixture of different chemicals that are used per customer and per well. And a lot of it's not standardized and a lot of it is not the same for every job that you do. And the chemical that you worked on, you mentioned biocides in particular, can vary from well to well, right? So there's a whole bunch of them. 
And I was just curious, what ones have you looked into? And more importantly, could you imagine that all these different biocides might have different effects on microbial resistance? And how would you kind of like study that as a whole big picture type thing? And if you thought about that. Yeah, so that's a good question. For my dissertation, we looked into two specific biocides, chloraldehyde and DVNPA. Together, they are like 50% of the market of biocides in fracking. Um, we saw just by community composition, which microbes can resist or not. It is different based on the biocide. There's, of course, some overlap, but there are different environmental biocides, that, microbes that can resist it. Um, right now, with our new funded project, we're going to look at two more biocides in addition to the, the ones that I mentioned. And we're going to look at more of the genetic markers to see if the genetic markers are the same or not. Because as I mentioned, antimicrobials give broad spectrum of resistance. So it's not a, it might be a gene that can confer resistance to any chemical, stuff that would stress, uh, stress a microbe. So it's going to be interesting to see if there's specific genes that can be affected or if they are all overlapping. I look forward to those findings, hopefully soon. <laughs> Is there much potential for CO2 to replace water as a fracking agent? I've heard about it being used some places, and of course, you know, the obvious attraction is the sequestering. Yeah, so I've not heard about CO2 used for fracking. I've heard about nitrogen gas, which is what is being used in Tennessee right now. I think it could happen. I am not a field engineer, so I would not be able to tell you if it could happen or not. I would be worried about volatility in the high pressures, but I don't know if, I don't know how that would affect. I don't, I don't have an answer for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to and sharing the Knox County Public Library podcast. Find other episodes and life-changing resources at knoxlib.org.